Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Say Why to Drugs. I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. It was recorded live at the Amazing Latitude Festival back in July of this year. I was joined by previous podcast guest Fiona Spargo-Mabs. Fiona came on previously to talk about drug education and her charity, the DSM Foundation. But at Latitude, we thought, what better place to speak about talking with your family about drugs? Fiona's recently published a fantastic and powerful book called I Wish I'd Known about her son Dan's death after taking MDMA and all the things she wishes she and Dan had been aware of in terms of evidence-based information about substances, why teenagers behave the ways that they do, along with advice about how to navigate conversations and things like that. I said this last time she was on, but I'm so in awe of how Fiona has taken such a profound tragedy and turned it into a message of hope for other people. But you can hear her for yourselves. So Fiona and I say why to talking with your family about drugs live at Latitude. Uh, my name is Dr Susie Gage. Um, I am a researcher at the University of Liverpool. I do research looking into the um, links between recreational drug use and mental health. And as well as that, I am also the creator and host of the Say Why to Drugs podcast. And Say Why to Drugs started as a way of providing unbiased um, evidence-based information about different recreational drugs, the legal ones and the illegal ones, without a distinction, without any judgment, spin or hyperbole. That was the attempt anyway. And it's really, really wonderful to be able to bring Say Why to Drugs to Latitude today. And I feel very, very lucky to be joined by my guest, uh, Fiona Spargo-Mabs. So, Fiona, would you be able to briefly introduce yourself? Um, so I'm Fiona Spargo-Mabs and I'm the director and founder of a drugs education charity, the Daniel Spargo-Mabs Foundation. Thank you. And what we're going to talk about for the next sort of half an hour or so before we open it up to questions is um, how do we have those difficult or not necessarily difficult, but can sometimes feel quite daunting conversations about drug use within our families? Now, Fiona, you mentioned the charity you set up is called the Daniel Spargo Mabs Foundation. So can you tell us about Daniel? Yeah, so um, 
Dan was my younger son and he died when he was 16 taking MDMA or ecstasy um, and we started the charity because we just wanted to make sure we were doing everything we could to stop any harm happening to anybody else's child. Dan, Dan was just, um, he was one of the last people on, on the radars that People of my age, you're younger than me, I'm sure, and you do this work, so you'll be much more tolerant and open-minded than I am. But I think the average person, the average parent, you can tend to have assumptions about the kind of people that might muck about with drugs and come to harm. Um, and Dan wouldn't have been on anybody's radar, but he did, and it made us realise an awful lot of things. One was, it's so easy for anybody to get caught up in something that can go badly wrong. Um, if something like this could happen to Dan, obviously worst-case scenario... Um, then it could happen to anybody. But, but also, as a parent, I realised I needed to know an awful lot more than I did. But I also realised that Dan needed to know an awful lot more than he did. And we realised a lot of schools were really struggling to do drug education well or at all, not for lack of will, but just for lack of, re of really good evidence-based re resources and support. So that's why we, we started the charity. But working with parents has obviously been at the heart of that all the way through. And so what does the charity do? We do all sorts of things. <laughs> so we work in, um, we work with directly with young people. We deliver uh, workshops. We work with uh, parents. We we do training for teachers and for other professionals working with young people. We've also got planning resources for schools to teach evidence-based drug education within PSHE personal social health education at school. Um, and we've got a, um, a youth ambassadors program. So we train up older teens to be those kind of really positive role models we've got a play that we commissioned so there's a theatre and education production that we tour but the play itself it's a verbatim play so it tells Dan's story using the words of his family and friends and and that's um, was published by Bloomsbury four years ago and that will become a GCSE drama set text actually next year which is amazing so young people all over the place will 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 get to it's got really, really powerful messages just in terms of choice and um, loss and, but also hope, um, forgiveness, all sorts of really, really important messages, but in, mostly in the words of young people because it's, it's Dan and his friends. So to think about then the topic for this podcast conversation about talking with your family about drugs, why do you think that's so important? Because... Families are where it all happens, really, for, for, for children and teenagers. It's easy, to, um, it's easy to believe the messages that can come from all sorts of directions that teenagers don't listen to a single word their parents say and they only listen to their friends, but parents remain the most important influence in their teenagers' lives. And teenagers, although they do spend a lot of time in their bedrooms and with their friends, nevertheless, that is their core base. And that's where their values are established and that's where they're kind of... Um, that's where the important big conversations will, all, will always happen and it's where they'll look for them as well. And so being able to resource and support families to have those conversations well, to know how to go about them, is, is absolutely key and the, the government commissions a school survey every two years and asks young people 11 to 15 year olds a lot of questions about smoking drinking and drugs and and one of the questions they ask is where would you go for useful information about alcohol and about drugs and it always really really surprises 
parents to learn that top of that list by a clear margin is parents for both alcohol and drugs so they and are that's the what the young people themselves are yeah. saying yeah yeah which is is the last parents will say um, their friends or social media or whatever but it is absolutely they might go to their friends for what they're going to wear on a friday night or what to get tattooed next or whatever but parents for the big stuff and you work with young people and with parents what are the kind of questions that people have for you about how to have these conversations we've talked about some of them backstage and things like um what age should you start these conversations explicit conversations i mean where you start talking more explicitly about drugs when but from when they're little you can talk about healthy choices and um you can be talking about medicine you know how much cowpol you should have at different ages and and why you shouldn't pretend that you're poorly so that you can get cowpol because it tastes so delicious and all that sort of thing um but in terms of talking quite more specifically about about substances around upper primary kind of 10 11 another thing the school survey found was um, one of the questions it asked was have you been offered illegal drugs so not alcohol vape cigarette uh, cigarettes and so on um and 16% of 11 year olds said that they'd been offered illegal drugs so it's something that is around and about for them but also now on social media and in films and dramas and all sorts of stuff there were so they will start to know about different substances so starting to have those conversations sort of 10 11 Yeah because they're quite often plot lines in soap operas uh, yeah. or even kids TV or not kids TV shows but young adult TV shows yes. that kind of thing so yeah. they're in the cultural ether even if they're not directly in peer group discussions and if you can start those conversations early when they can be more comfortable that the whole a lot of the objective really is making this a comfortable conversation on both sides because again it's easy for parents to to forget that it can be an uncomfortable conversation for teenagers to broach you know if they really do want to talk to their parent they can worry that their parent their parents will worry or they'll panic or or they'll they'll lock them up and never let them out again or never let them see those friends again or whatever it is but so it's really important that That, that that's a conversation that everybody can come back to when they need to and if you start that conversation as a as a conversation that's ongoing at, at the point at which they're not really around and about stuff they're not going off to, hopefully but 10 11 not going off independently to parties uh, where stuff is around um then you you've, you've got that going while it's safer kind of all all around you're less likely to get defensive reactions and stuff i think it's it's worth saying at this point that obviously we are both We're both parents. I mean, I've got an 8-month-old, so I'm not really thinking about these conversations just yet, but we are very much coming at this from a parental perspective. We were hoping to have um some young people on the panel and unfortunately that wasn't able. So if there are young people in the audience, have a think about questions that you have about how you want these conversations to go because we'd really love that input in this discussion as well. Um and I'm definitely too old to really remember what it was like to be a teenager so please uh don't I the last thing I want to be is patronizing. Um but one of the questions I know a lot of parents have is why shouldn't we just be saying don't do drugs? Drugs are dangerous, drugs are illegal, they're illegal for a reason whatever that reason may be. Why aren't we just saying blanket don't do them? 
well, that is always going to be your safest option. Um, and so as a parent, that's, of course, that's, that's what you would wish for your children. They don't touch them, don't go near them, um, and then they're going to be safe. And of course, that's the thing as a parent, you more, want more than anything else in the universe. Um, but it's not a message that goes far enough, especially as children get older. Um, and things do start to get around and, and around them because if if you just say no then that's you know anything in terms of risk management it's all done but if you find that you're saying yes for whatever reason there can be all sorts of reasons why young people say yes and we know statistically that an awful lot of young people most young people aren't but but some young people are um, and it's really important that there's enough of an understanding about what the risks, what the effects can be. What are the good things you might hear? What are, what, what are the risks that go along with that that you may not know about? And also not just about individual substances and risks and effects, but also about that decision-making process because it is the hardest time of your life to make any sort of decisions um, safely to think things through to manage risk to manage your impulses and emotions and so on so it's very easy to find yourself saying yes and then if all you've got is I'm not supposed to do this you haven't got any strategies to manage that to just say no that's what I grew up with um, in in the 80s and um, the song Grain Chill and all that Um, and it was it was what was part of the US program of drugs education for decades actually and it's still used it's the drug and alcohol resistance education dare isn't it yeah those those t-shirts became very popular in a sort of potentially ironic way (laughs) yeah because it was it was shown unfortunately it'd be great if it had worked but there were there were there was more than one there were a couple of really big evaluations that were done of it and and it was found that not only did it not work but also it actually caused for some young people was counterproductive and numerically there were more people more young people that were using drugs from having had that than from not having had that so just say no it 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 just falls short unfortunately but it bottom line always your safest option I think a lot of parents will never have tried an illicit drug and a lot of parents will have tried an illicit drug and for both of those groups I think there are questions about then if you have used illicit drugs how honest should you be about that to your child and 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 at what age like because yeah as you say it's a very difficult line to tread here and I'm sure lots of parents have anxieties about not wanting to sound like they're condoning drug use particularly at a young age Mm. but also not wanting to be hypocritical yeah it's a hard one and you know we get asked that I think at every single parents workshop so with any group of parents we talk to there's at least one person um, that has that has used drugs and realistically statistically it's very likely that with any group there will be somebody in and it is something that worries parents and um, it's with with advice for parents it's always difficult to give a definitive answer because there is there are so many it depends about anything but it it does depend on a lot of things one the age of your child I mean if it's a very young child you might want to be quite elusive and evasive and and kind of not actually answer it but with an with an with an older child um it's it's important to kind of um 
to think about what the what, I, I guess what's their motivation behind asking, but also what was the context of your own drug use, you know, and what what age were you? What was it that you were using? What was your motivation for using something? Uh, what was your motivation for stopping? What, what what was what was going on for you around that? What was the context, and what can you take from that that would be useful for your child? Um, generally speaking, it was cannabis, and people were in their twenties. Cannabis was never like in the good old days when drugs were drugs and didn't do anyone any harm. It wasn't ever that it was that, but it's just so strong now. And somebody who's fourteen smoking weed at the with the levels of THC that it generally has now, is a very different experience than someone in their 20s at university smoking cannabis as it was sort of 20, 30 years ago. Not that that was okay, and it was still illegal, um, and so on. But, it, but it's, there, are, there are various things. But what, what we always talk to parents about is preparing for that question because you're likely to get it. So, you, so you've got the opportunity, take the opportunity to plan ahead how you might want to frame that. And, and think about what the context is. And then on the sort of flip side of that is parents who um, have never have never been sort of around drug use or um, have tried it themselves and their child might come to them with a question and they might feel potentially very out of their depth and wanting to be able to answer that question but not knowing sort of how to go about it. Well, it just so happens that I've written a book for parents and you've also written a really, really accessible book about drugs. So they're both really useful places to go to fight. Text in the post. (laughs) They're both actually on sale just around the corner there on the bookshelves. Um, But honestly, it is really difficult. I mean, one of the reasons that I really wanted... We started the charity for so many reasons, but it was basically to make sure that other young people and parents were better equipped than Dan and I had been to make sure that things went not anywhere near so bad. It didn't go wrong at all in any way, shape or form. Um, but as a parent, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And however, I mean, you're very much younger than me, as I've said already, and you feel that you can't, you know, your teenage years. And even if you were, certainly parents that we're talking to who've got maybe someone who's 20 and another child who's 14, their children will say, the the 20-year-old will say, it's so different now than it was when I was 14. You know, things change so fast. And I think now they change even faster than they used to, partly through social media and the kind of dynamic of it all. But as a parent, you don't know what you don't know. And even if you were around drugs when you were younger, it's all very different now. So, But there are lots of places to find things out. I think... One of the things we talked about um, when we were planning this conversation as well is that actually probably almost all parents and almost all adults, certainly in this country, have tried a psychoactive substance. They're probably um, using it today uh, at this festival, and obviously that is alcohol. And there are lots of lessons from your our understanding of alcohol that can also be implied be applied to other substances in terms of dose response effects, harm reduction messages, um, what happens if you use too much and it starts to impact on your day-to-day life and you might be worried about dependence. All those issues that we know quite a lot about through alcohol are also relevant around other substances. Absolutely, and I think it's... it's, um it's important for parents to to 
realise that they know a lot more than they do realise. I mean, they might not know, they might never know what those little silver canisters are and what's in them. It's nitrous oxide, by the way. But, um, th- but, they, but they do, most adults in this country know about alcohol. Even if they don't drink themselves and they haven't done, they'll know from other people and from just general kind of a cultural stuff. And so there's such a lot of knowledge that, that is totally transferable just from that. That, um, as you know, the, 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 in... in uh, in talking to people about the risks of drugs, it's looking at those kind of different dimensions of risk in terms of drug set setting is what it's often referred to as, but it's the variables to do with the substance itself, the variables to do with the individual that's using that substance and the variables to do with the environment that they're in. And people will have a really good understanding of that from alcohol. You know, you can know if you're with a group of friends and you're all having a glass of wine, it will affect different people within that group differently. Somebody might have eaten already, people have different levels of tolerance, somebody might be in a really bad mood and it's likely to make that a lot worse someone might be being you know the effect is going to be very different on different individuals and then the environment that you're in again if you have a half a bottle of wine sitting on the sofa at home it's very different than if you're sitting on a high up wall over cliffs below or something you know so but all of that is is totally transferable and 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 having a conversation about alcohol feels a lot safer than having a conversation about drugs anyway but knowing that all the stuff around that including you were talking you mentioned harm reduction and all the harm reduction stuff about alcohol, people are often much more aware of anyway in terms of detail about drugs, but there is harm reduction information about, about drugs um, in, in just the same way. You know, all the things that you might know about alcohol in terms of pacing yourself or um, being aware of a tolerance building up or things that you shouldn't mix. You know, you don't have alcohol with other medicines, for example, with, with, with some medicines. Um, yeah. Now, earlier on, you mentioned a little bit about the adolescent brain. And I think when you were researching your book, that was something that you um, quite focused on, wasn't it? That we think about sort of it's the drugs that are the issue here, but actually it's a bit it's a bit more complicated than that, potentially. Yeah, absolutely, because it's not just about knowing stuff, it's about what you do with that knowledge. And I think even as adults, we can make very silly mistakes in certain situations, however knowledgeable and sensible and clever we are. Um, but it's definitely the case in adolescence. It's a, it's, a, it's a really, really fascinating stage of neurological development in adolescence, and it, and it lasts a long time. So it starts around puberty, around 10, and doesn't stop until they're 25. And it's a critical period of change where the brain is kind of rewiring itself, really. And, and there's what's sometimes referred to as a developmental mismatch. So th- there's an area of the brain that's... that's um, I'm telling you this, you're a psychologist, let me tell you this, because you know it already. <laughs> In fact, a lot more than I do. But an area of the brain that's called the limbic system, which is um, sometimes called the feeling and reacting brain, it's very much associated with that kind of natural happy high dopamine and, and, and very much kind of where all the reward stuff happens. It's, it's stimulated by social and emotional variables. So if you think of your typical teenager and that kind of intensity of emotions and everything is quite emotion-driven and... and, and, and Everything can be quite... People, young people can be quite impulsive and, and kind of reactive in that moment. And that's because that's really well-developed and the bit of their brain that they need to kind of manage their limbic system, their prefrontal cortex, isn't fully connected until they're in their mid-20s. So there's, there's that... that, that they're, they're kind of firing on cylinders from this emotional centre of their brain and particularly around social stuff. But that, that bit of their brain that would help them kind of 
think things through and all that what would happen if and regulating their emotions and managing their impulses um, and also kind of remembering that something went wrong all of that is just harder to access until really and they're in the mid-20s so in, a, in that moment of decision faced with something that they know is a risk actually being able to manage that risk safely is really is is really tricky and then there's the whole role of their peers their friends which does really shift at that age as well not to do with neurological development particularly apart from they are particularly responsive to and hypersensitive to social exclusion but just that natural shift from needing to know you're safe in your family to needing to know that you're safe outside your family and needing to know that you're okay with your peers is is a kind of a, a survival instinct as much as anything else and so they do inevitably have a huge load more influence so there's a thing that um, Sarah Jane Blakemore's written brilliant 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 stuff about uh, the, the adolescent brain but she talks about the social risk factor so you can know that this substance is risky you've done your drug education you've had brilliant conversations at home with your mum or your dad um, but you weigh that risk up against the social risk of maybe these friends not seeing you how you'd like them to see you or never asking you to go to whatever it is again because you're really boring because you're not doing whatever you know and, and and that social risk can on on occasion outweigh the known risks and this is all talking about sort of neurotypical young people but what about um neurodiverse young people because i understand that you're writing a sort of extra bit for your book at the moment thinking a bit more broadly about about neurodiversity yes absolutely and that's a lot of that is in response to again questions from parents where it's particularly parents who've got children who are um, they've got autistic children very often ADHD as well um, and recognize that they are more vulnerable to taking risks especially around uh, well any sort of risks really but they come to me because I'm drugs and alcohol but um so yes I'm writing some additional some supplementary materials that should be ready in the autumn but it's it's a a lot of it will be the the same in terms of principles like if you're having that conversation finding a time when distractions are minimal for example but those distractions will be different for a neurodiverse neurodivergent teenager than um, neurotypical so it might be you know that all well, the sensory distractions that there might be they can get very much more exhausted um, but also helping them I guess recognizing that there can be different motivations behind using substances so if there's somebody that you know is is really desperate to be it can be obviously it can be a lot harder to be accepted by your peers if you're that bit different. Um, and so people can end up doing stuff that they wouldn't normally do because they, they're out of that kind of wanting to be socially accepted. Or sometimes because they're not socially accepted, they can find themselves in a group that's also not socially accepted, which can be a drug-using group within a kind of wider year group. Um, a lot of... Uh, there the can be a higher statistically a higher proportion of mental health problems in neurodiverse young people and so using substances to cope with mental health issues can be a concern or just using substances to cope with symptoms and to seem more neurotypical so if they do kind of have repetitive behaviors or um, sometimes young people talk about if they're in a group of other teenagers that are drunk they seem normal because everyone's a bit 
neurodivergent, neurodiverse when they're drunk, or their behaviours can be. So being aware of all of those sorts of things as a parent and being able to talk about those things. But in, in terms of the conversations, it's really thinking about how do conversations work best with your child. There's that saying, isn't there, that if you've met an autistic person, you've met an autistic person. That's a kind of... Because there's... There, there is no we're all unique as individuals but there's there's so much more uniqueness when you come to people who are neurodiverse so knowing your own child as well as you possibly can and what works best in terms of communication I'm going to open it up to questions in a couple of minutes but before we do that I thought it would be good to sort of broaden it out a little bit and just Fiona get your kind of advice on good ways to have these conversations sort of where should we be having them? When should we be having them? Um, what, what, like, what doesn't work? What are things to really avoid? So we mentioned when we were talking backstage, sort of, it sounds maybe a bit trite, but kind of the way that you're sitting can actually make a big difference in how how easy or hard it is to have these conversations. Yes, definitely. I mean, sitting your child down and facing them and saying, we need to have a talk about drugs is probably not the best way to come at it. Um, but, but it might be. I mean, it might be in that context. It might be part of an ongoing conversation. Um, there, there are kind of rules because it d- does depend. Unfortunately, there's no kind of magic wand anyway that you can, that you can wave to make things work. Um, we, we talked at the beginning about making it an, a comfortable conversation and an ongoing conversation. So things that don't shut that conversation down are really good. Um, there's been some... There have been a few studies done. There haven't been lots, but some studies done looking at what makes conversations about drugs protective or increase risk around adolescent decision-making. And the... the a really key to it seems to be parent-child connectedness and parent-child communication in a much more kind of broad sense. So anything that you can do with your teenager to build that connectedness, which which any any opportunity to spend time with them to do stuff together that you enjoy, and that, that will then build the communication and vice versa. So those sideways conversations, that kind of in the moment um, when you're being the taxi or when you're kind of doing the washing up if you can get your teenager to do the washing up with you um but those sort of incidental conversations can be really valuable and and it was also uh, what came out of that as well is that but also just it's common sense i guess really but that that balance which is can be quite tricky between being too harsh and being too lenient so so kind of being too hard line that the lecture really doesn't work it's got to be lots of listening it's got to be two way so where parents are very kind of coercive and controlling which of course you you don't want your child to come to risk so it's really understandable but but on the other hand if you kind of say they're not going to listen to me anyway if you if you feel disempowered and that this isn't a conversation that you can have any influence over you can take that step back and it's really tricky because that needs to change as they get older so the conversation you have with a 12 year old is going to be really different from the conversation you have with a seven-year-old in terms of boundaries and what is and isn't okay and when it's okay to come back and you know and so on and who you come back with um but but knowing children knowing that there are expectations of their behavior and that there are boundaries and that there's some degree of parental monitoring all of that seems to be protective it just needs to be really flexible which is what makes being a parent really tricky (laughs) 
you, you said a brilliant phrase when we were talking backstage that children are far more worried about disappointing their parents than than angering their parents yeah I mean probably parents of teenagers here would recognize that and if there are any teenagers here teenagers generally they really really don't want to disappoint their parents and you can have a lot more power as a parent if you're terribly terribly disappointed than if you get really angry if I mean sometimes it's entirely appropriate to be really cross you know if someone's done something that they're not supposed to do they know full well they will be totally expecting you to get cross anyway um but that can really shut conversations down and shut that door but a disappointed parent can have an awful lot of power and you will be disappointed you know because you love your child and you thought you'd had this conversation you thought they understood that you know you you, so you will be but let the disappointment out (laughs) I think that's a really brilliant place to wrap it up thank you to everyone who asked questions thank you all for coming and listening and thank you so much to Fiona thank you oh thank you for inviting me along thank you And there we go. Thanks again to Fiona and thanks very much to Latitude for having us. As you may have heard, there was a Q&A session after the chat, but unfortunately that wasn't recorded, so it will just have to stay in the room for the people who were there. Looking forward, I'm hoping that there will be one more episode in this little flurry, seems perhaps a more appropriate word than season for this selection of episodes, but um, we will see as it hasn't been recorded yet. So hopefully we'll be back in two weeks, but in the meantime, go and buy Fiona's books and have a lovely time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.